Mother had a real special dream. It was about fire. She said she could hear sheep and cows and horses in the dream, so she sent word that everyone should go over to the barn and bring as much water with them as possible. This was in the middle of the night, but nobody asked any questions. About two hours later, three clansmen rode up to the barn. One of them was holding a torch. Were there more coming? Was this the start of another Tulsa or Rosewood massacre? Another Slocum? Nobody moved or said a word. For the first time, I noticed how loud the sound of a single torch can be. That's when Annella emerged from the house in her silk dressing gown, her long curly hair floating at her shoulders. She slow marched scarily close to the clansmen at the front and locked eyes with them. The front horse stamped, one, two, three. It wasn't cold, but something about watching them gave me the shivers like crazy. Out of nowhere, the clansmen at the front signaled the others, and then they just up and rode away, torch and all. My Auntie Bibi had an amazing way of lacing even the most dire of circumstances with hope. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so happy to be joined by Jin Hammond, author of the novel Returning the Bones. I had all this flop sweat calling these strangers, just trying to connect and find out more about my roots. Jin Hammond is a graduate of Harvard University and Moscow Art Theater. She has performed nationally and internationally at theaters such as the Guthrie, the Long Wharf Theater, and the Studio Theater in Washington, D.C., where she won a Helen Hayes Award for Outstanding Lead Actress. A certified associate teacher of Fitzmaurice Voice Work, Hammond teaches voice, voiceover, public speaking, and dialect coaching. Today, I'll be talking to Jin about her novel, Returning the Bones. So this novel is about your Aunt Caroline, Aunt BB, mm-hmm. as you refer to her, uh, Dr. Caroline Beatrice Hammond. Could you start just by maybe listing off some of her accomplishments? Oh, gosh. Uh, professionally, <laughs> well, professionally, she started off as a child working in a hospital and then became a junior veterinarian as a teenager and then <laughs> went off to, and she was valedictorian, then went off to uh, Howard University. She was student body president. Um, and she became a doctor when there were very, very few black female doctors in the United States or the world. And then she went on to become a 
um, a surgeon, an OBGYN, and later a psychiatrist when she graduated from Yale. And then she went off to head up a few hospitals along the way. And then in her retiring years, she was a freelance consultant working with such a wide range of people, everyone from incarcerated people to celebrities to sports stars. And in the meantime, she managed to be a mom of five kids and had a wonderful marriage to her husband, which anybody who's married knows that is quite an accomplishment. Uh, yes, it's indeed, she's quite remarkable. How, how is it that you came to, I guess, first that you, you weren't really aware of all these accomplishments, and then how is it that you came to find out and learn about them? Yeah, not at all. I was wanting to connect more with family when I was in my 20s, and we didn't grow up anywhere near the rest of the extended family. And so I just started reaching out, and this was back in the days of flip phones, so you couldn't just send a casual text saying, hey, or connect through social media. So I was using phone book and finding relatives saying, hello, I am related to you. And I had all this flop sweat calling these strangers, just trying to connect and find out more about my roots. And she was the one who welcomed me into her home. And then I proceeded to interview her over the course of about 10 years or so. And so we're talking about the the novel that you you made based on your life, um, returning the bones, but it started out as a play, and I, I guess I, I'm curious to know the development of the story, like when it first formed in your mind to when it became a narrative in some form to when, how it became a novel. Can you kind of go through that a little bit? Yeah, I. <laughs> I was just collecting stories at first. I didn't know how they were going to come together, and I didn't really have a particular intention for them to come together. But when she told the story of how when she was a small child and she was getting bullied by this white boy and she hit him, this was in a small town in Texas, full Jim Crow situation politically in that area, she told me about spending almost... 24 hours hiding underneath her Aunt Ella's bed because she was so terrified that the sheriff was going to imprison her or worse. And I could picture myself so clearly as this terrified child wondering, was this going to be the end of me? And I started writing a little bit then. And then a friend of mine later on said, hey, there is this year-long residency that's going to be happening in town. I think you should put all of these stories together. And I said, oh, I don't know about that. And then she basically gave me the look and I gave it a go. But there were so many stories. It was very, very hard to uh, choose which ones at first. So on a much older laptop, I created a file called Save for the Book, knowing that I would never write a book. <laughs> and uh, I went on to perform the play. And so many people said, oh, I would love to see this as a book. And they identified with BB because she was a bookworm. And then other people would say, oh, I'd love to see this on the screen. So when a theater company called Book It Repertory Theater decided to produce the play, it was the only play that they had ever produced in all their 30 years that hadn't started as a book first. 
because what they do is they adapt books for the stage. And so the pressure was on to finally reverse engineer that. And I resuscitated that old laptop and was looking through the files and just got into it over the course of years, especially when I was living in Europe and could visit some of the places that my aunt went to. Wow. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear how an, an idea germinates, you know, you save it as a file saved for the book and you don't really know if that's going to come to fruition or not. Exactly. Well, you mentioned your, your grandmother, or I'm sorry, your aunt traveling to Europe. Um, but before we talk about that, I want to know a little bit more about her childhood. You mentioned she grew up in Texas. Um, how did she go from a, a farm girl who loves music to one who's dedicated to healing? It's funny. She, in a way, didn't have a choice. My grandfather, who was born around 1890, he was able to get an education, even though it was still illegal for many Blacks to be, even get an education at that time, and he became a doctor. And he happened to have remarkable business acumen as well. So he started a hospital and he started all of these businesses that were spread out throughout Bryan, Texas. So as a small child, she was going in and at first doing maintenance things, janitorial things, and then was assisting him gradually in more important procedures. And she learned suturing as a small child. She learned all kinds of things. So she was living and breathing that life. And in the book, that's not what she wants at all. She just wants to live a small life as a, maybe a librarian. And her father wants her to inherit everything. It all kinds of kind of falls on her shoulders. So she's feeling this immense pressure, and after the death of one of her beloved relatives, her guilt prevents her from rebelling against this very prescribed life where she feels like she can hardly breathe, but she goes along with it for a long period of time. And she realized later that she did have a gift for healing, and uh, a gift for healing in all sorts of different ways, in fact. So... It's almost mm, shamanistic how how gifted she was uh, when it came to being a healer. And then she does in, in her adult years travel to Europe and see some some things that kind of kind of change her perspective. Can you talk about her her visit to Auschwitz and what that did? Yes, when she was in Europe there was an opportunity to stay. The, the university in Paris was very impressed with her. And they said, how about you finish your education here for free? And she was in Paris at a time when that was one of the only places you could go as a Black American and feel celebrated, welcomed, and loved um, from literature to jazz and all of the things. And so there was a, a great desire to live this life that she only could have dreamed of before. And then there were a few students she was with who wanted to go see Auschwitz for themselves. We sometimes think about fake news being a more recent thing, but there was plenty of fake news happening back then. And even at Howard University, uh, she said that 
people were saying, well, maybe the Holocaust didn't actually happen. And so she went with these students, those, uh, the handful of students she was with were Jewish, and she went there and met somebody her own age who had last, lost her entire family in the Holocaust and had sworn to be at that place and making sure that it did not get destroyed so that history would not be lost and people would really understand the tremendous cost of not standing up for each other. And it inspired her choice about whether to stay in Europe or to come back to the United States. Yeah, I, I can't imagine um, how startling that can be and how that might that might kind of motivate someone to change their path a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And it was remarkable to go there, even though it has a mm, kind of a twisted touristy feel to it now when you when you first go to the parking lot area. But everything else is still very much preserved. And the feeling that you get when you go there is eerie. There were no birds. It was very silent, no wind. And to walk on the same paths, I'm sure at least a few of them that my aunt had walked on, knowing she had seen what she had seen. And she added more than a few times, smelled when she visited Auschwitz just after the war. It was definitely uh, chilling. Well, obviously, that's something that's important to visit just as as a member of the human race. Yeah. But did you utilize that as a part of your storytelling in order to deepen the emotions or anything like that? The emotions, the detail, what she says to her, to the student body at Howard University. She told me she had given a presentation but she didn't say what she had said. And in the play, I went directly from Auschwitz to another scene, but I knew I needed a transition. And as soon as I got back from uh, that one campus, because it's many campuses spread out over many miles, um, uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, I wrote straight from my heart and then put that in the play. And now it's in the book too. I didn't change a word. Wow. Uh, well, I know you spent 10 years um, interviewing your aunt, but I'm curious to know what kind of outside research did you have to do in order to you know, build those his historical details into the story? Yeah. The trip to Paris that I took, walking around all the places I happened to be with somebody who knows every square inch of Paris and loves to talk about it. And so I got plenty of information that way. I had uh, visited Hungary. I, um, I went to other um, transit camps uh, in the Netherlands. I went to Westerbork and uh, Hoot, uh, I think another one's called Amsfort, something like that. And I also went to Texas and it was funny. I was trying to do some research on the kinds of cars they were driving because my grandfather, he almost sort of 
passed for white. I guess it depended on the time of year and whether or not he was wearing a hat, but something he loved to do was to go into a car dealership with a big stack of cash and get whatever was the newest car. That was his joy. And so cars factor significantly in the story, but also because of what they represented for Black people at that time, because that way you wouldn't have to ride at the back of the bus, for example, right? Or ride in the colored car. And so on a, on a train, I mean. And uh, so I was doing some research on the kinds of cars that existed then that maybe don't exist now. But then also, my grandfather and my father, they had been uh, Pullman porters for a time to help put themselves through medical school. And so I went to this one museum. It was in October and it was just before Halloween. And Throughout the Pullman Porter cars, they had all of these mannequins dressed up in scary outfits with fake blood and <laughs> cobwebs and things. So I'm taking pictures of the interiors of the of the cars, but I, you know, had to kind of move the skeletons aside and <laughs> take pictures of what the ashtrays really look like and things like that. So it got pretty silly. Wow, it's just such intricate details that you have to get into as a historical, you know, uh, storyteller. Yeah, yeah. I went to the uh, library in, what is it, San Antonio as well, where my great aunt Prudence, who also factors into the story, was a librarian f there for 40 years at least. And there's still a Prudence Lewis Curry reading club there because she made sure that uh, the kids had some place to go after school and she read to them every day. And I met elders at that library who said, oh, yes, I remember your aunt, even though it was decades ago. Mm. Well, we've been talking about your aunt um, almost exclusively here, but let's talk about you a little bit. Uh, is it true that you were expected to go into dentistry? My father really hoped I would. It's true. And I did work with him for a couple of summers as a sort of junior dental assistant. And I feel sorry for the patients who had to <laughs> encounter somebody who was practically a child working on their mouths. Uh, but uh, yeah, it did not suit me at all. I am unfortunately very stereotypical when it comes to being an artist. So then how did you find your way into acting? Well... I was a very shy artist at first, so in school I couldn't even be heard when I would speak, but I got into the idea of hiding behind the mask of a character, and then as time went on, I realized, oh, in order to be any good at acting, I actually have to do the thing that I'm the most afraid of and put my heart out there but something in me knew that it was right. But my parents weren't really into the idea, so I kind of snuck around doing plays, and I continued to do that. And then when I got accepted into grad school, I called them and I said, hey, so um, I'm going to Harvard? And they said, for what? <laughs> that's kind of how, uh, in the habit of not telling them about my theatrical life, I got because they just had no idea that this was my passion and that I was going for the gold, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Can you talk about what 
some of the differences are between telling this story on the stage versus on written paper. Um, I'm curious, maybe, you know, each one has their constraints, but each one has Mm -hmm. their advantages. Can you talk about the differences between the two and what you can and can't do depending on the format? (laughs) Yes. So with the play, since it's a a time-based medium, you have to whittle it down to what is both relevant and important with no extra details. And it can't just be relevant or important. It definitely has to be both. And then with the book, I couldn't convey the, you know, the tone of a moment necessarily with just a look or a gesture or maybe the sound effects. So I was constantly reminding myself, okay, nobody knows this story. Nobody can hear me. You really need to um, to put it all out there. And then for a time I was working on an episodic version. This was in the heart of lockdown in 2020. And that was a very different beast as well. Um, it did all right. It, it got through the first round of the Sundance episodic lab selections, and I might revisit that at another time. But that's a medium where you have to you have to tell the story with pictures as much as humanly possible, and then add text only when absolutely necessary. And what kind of challenges did you face uh, from the perspective of craft when you did start making this into a novel? Did you have to rely on some of your earlier education? Did you have to get some additional training? Was it just did it just come across naturally? What what challenges did you face in that regard? I got additional training. I realized uh, with some help that there are words that I really favor thousands of times in the course of a little bit of storytelling. So I really had to uh, uh, just expand that. And aside from that, I was just doing my best to not be perfect. I, I'm the co-founder of the Seattle Artists Way um, class, because <laughs> you could call it. And one of the things that that stresses when people are trying to bring their creativity up to the next level um, is that, well, A, there's always a next level. There's no stopping. And B, wherever you start, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. So I was at least able to tell myself, it doesn't have to be perfect now. You can go through it, 20, 30 drafts, and uh, just continue to make it better without um, being too hard on yourself. So just keep going. Yeah, I think that's great advice. It, it doesn't have to be perfect now. I like that. So you're a, you're a teacher too. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about you know what you teach and what you enjoy about it and, and what some of your uh, strategies are in teaching. Uh, I love to see that spark in somebody's eyes when they realize, oh, I don't have to be afraid. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Um, Primarily, I coach vocally, uh, not for singing, but uh, for speech, for accents and dialects. And what's really fun about that, too, is that it allows a person to step into somebody else's shoes that much more. Because with accents and dialects, it affects the very way you breathe. 
and you have to have a certain attitude so you understand the musicality. So you have to get into, into the worldview of that character. You have to get the gestures. It is a full body experience to do an accent or a dialect well. And that's when you can understand somebody better when you dedicate yourself in that way. And when the arts can help us understand each other that much more and connect us, I think it deepens our our humanity and and grows our curiosity. And those two things tend to make for a better world. Well, you, I learned so much just, just during that small explanation. Maybe you should come back and teach a master class for us. Great. I'd love to. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, you created an app, I believe, for act, meditation for actors. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So I was asked by a director for a show that I was doing dialect coaching for to come up with some meditations, some pre-rehearsal meditations, because the show had a lot to do with some heavy subjects, um, violence, uh, civil war, uh, what it is to be an immigrant in a place that doesn't welcome you, all of those things. So I said, yes, of course. But as I was making the meditations, I thought, well, there must already be a Meditations for Actors app. And when I looked on Google Play and the Apple Store, there wasn't one. And what we need as actors tends to be pretty different from what, sorry, this is what the actors call other non-actors, uh, civilians. Uh, so if you need to meditate before a show, for example, you don't want to be very, very calm or else you're not going to step onto the stage bringing that energy that makes people lean forward before you even say a word. So these are tailored to actors, their needs, and in peculiar situations too. For example, what if you're working in a horror film and you really need to get into character and you really need to get out of character. All of those kinds of things are taken into consideration and we um, we are coming up with new ones every month because there's always another meditation to do. You know, if you feel like, oh, that role should have been mine, then we do a, that role should have been mine meditation and try and get people moving forward and not stuck in the shoulda, coulda, woulda mode that is really easy to get into. And very often actors after an audition too, they're kind of messed up for the rest of the day because that's the mode that they're in and they're in a place of suspense because they don't know, am I going to have to quit my current job and, and reschedule my life so I can take this other job or did I not get the job or are they going to call me in for something else, et cetera, et cetera. So, so many head games. We need help. We need help, Colin. Sure. <laughs> Well, you know, I've discovered a little bit of a community of actors on TikTok, and that's uh, really fascinating from, you know, being outside that world oh. to, to see you guys kind of come together and support each other that way. I've also been listening to a podcast called Dead Eyes by Connor Ratliff. Yeah. And he was fired by Tom Hanks um, oh. to be on an episode of uh, Band of Brothers in 2001, and it scarred him for life. <laughs> so he did that that podcast. But the podcast is really fascinating because he wasn't able to talk to, talk to Tom Hanks right away. It took like 30 episodes. And in those episodes, he just filled it with actors coming on, people who were part of the show, casting directors, all those things. And wow. you really get 
some in-depth knowledge in you know behind the scenes of what it's like to to go through that that lifestyle i i can't you know it it sounds like it is grueling for sure yeah it definitely can be yeah there is i'll tell you since we're on the topic a new thing i'm always taking classes and there is a new approach coming out of germany of all places um that's helping actors access emotion really quickly, really frictionlessly and intensely and come out of it. It's revolutionary and I am so excited about it. And I, I say ironically because and this is also in my teacher's, uh, <laughs> she would also say this. She said, for example, oh, did you know that uh, at the funerals, they would give the people pills when they come in the room into the church because they didn't want any emotion. <laughs> did you know that, that they used to give? mourners pills in church in Germany so that nobody would have a big reaction of any kind. I never heard of that. Yeah. Well, storytelling is, is about emotional truths and whether you're on the stage or, you know, in front of the camera or, uh, you know, writing a book, it's at least I can relate in that sense. Yes. Yes. Let's take a moment to go back to your novel, Returning the Bones. Uh, I'd like you to talk about what are some of the the messages that you want to get across with this story? What are some conversations that you want to start or, or some things that you want to provoke by sharing this history? The biggest thing that I want to provoke is hope. My Auntie Bibi had an amazing way of lacing even the most dire of circumstances with hope and the story of her hitting that boy who is bullying her that has that in in the end because they did encounter each other as adults later and there was a lot of grace and hope in that moment and the idea that people can change is laced throughout that and that we do have more in common that than we don't. Those are some of the, the main things. Um, also, not to deny yourself or anybody else their true voice and that it's worth it to figure out for yourself what it is that you truly want and that when you figure that out, to fight for it. Well, such wonderful messages, and I'm so glad you were able to discover your your aunt's life and able to share it that way. Thank you. So what are you working on now? What's next for you? I know the novel comes out soon. We're speaking here before it comes out, but um, what's your next big project? My next big project? Well, you know how I said in order to act really well, you have to do the thing you fear the most? I have decided to write a play on what it's like to look white when your entire family is black, save for your mother. So the rest of my family looks totally different from me. I got none of the melanin. <laughs> and it's been an interesting perspective. So I'm going to go for a writer's residency uh, through Key City Public Theater in Port Townsend, Washington, which is a beautiful little town, a beautiful little Victorian town, if you've never heard of it. And if the Civil War had gone a different way, you would have heard of it because they were setting it up to be the new capital should the Union 
not prevail. <laughs> so all of the streets are named after presidents and it's a remarkable little place. Anyway, so I am going to be taking the bins of journals that I have schlepped around with me throughout my life. I've moved about 20 times and I'm going to be going through those journals and putting together a play maybe a solo play, I'm not sure. Uh, Returning the Bones was a 29-character solo play, and um, for the record, it hurts. It hurts to do that. So I'm going to be going through that and constructing a play, and the prism I'm going to be working with is language and self-expression. When are you allowed to sound one way versus another way? Uh, Who's doing the allowing and who's doing the permitting? What is performative race as opposed to uh, the construct that you grew up with, all of those things. So uh, I don't want to make it as so much about me, but more about parameters around self-expression and really looking at that in in both an academic way and in a way that's a love letter to future generations who are going to be experiencing this because I know I had nobody to refer to when I was growing up. So I don't want them to go through some of the same things that I went through growing up. That sounds very valuable. And yeah, I'm sure there's going to be people out there who can relate and need that, need that message conveyed the way only the way only you can convey it. Yeah. That they're not alone. Well, Jin, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Congratulations on returning the bones. And I really appreciate having you on today. Thank you so much. 